There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Bible that was up here. If that is you, I pray the Lord convicts you of that. <laughs> and I probably misplaced it knowing me. Uh, Verse 4. So if it's a little, it might be a little bit different than the actual uh, what we'll be reading. So if you can please stand when you get that. That's way too easy, Lisa. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now, what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of his house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. Just pray, Lord, that it would do in each individual heart what it needs to do, Lord, whether it be the work of salvation or sanctification or encouragement, just what your Holy Spirit needs it to be. I pray you'd make it real to each person here, starting with me. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this man is walking down the street, and he finds a bottle in the sand. He rubs it, and a genie pops out. This may not be true, so you might not want to take notes on this part. Anyway, the genie says, you get three wishes for letting me out. Well, the man absolutely despised his mother-in-law, and he told the genie as much. Well, the genie decided to have some fun for a change. So he told the man that whatever he wished for his mother-in-law would get twice as much. Now, this, of course, bummed the guy out, but then he had an idea. He said, for my first wish, I would like a billion dollars. And poof, there it was, bundles all around him. The genie said, your mother-in-law just received two billion dollars. Fine, the man said. For my second wish, I would like an island off the coast of Greece. The genie smiled and said, okay, but your mother-in-law now has two islands. It's at this time that a devious look appears on the face of the man. He says, for my final wish, I would like you to beat me half to death. 
That guy just couldn't stand the thought of his mother-in-law getting more than himself. And envy is a terrible thing. And we're going to be looking this morning at one of the most famous examples in all of the Bible concerning this. Look at verse 4 with me. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to a sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The whole thing seems kind of strange, doesn't it? I mean, when in our day, when you make a friend, you don't say, Here, here's my shirt. I want you to have it and wear it. Don't be embarrassed. Just go ahead and put it on. That does seem a little weird, doesn't it? So what's going on here in our account? Well, this was not a casual thing that Jonathan was doing. Most likely what is going on here is Jonathan recognizes that David has been called by God to be the next king of Israel. And he wants David to not only know that he sees and accepts this, but that he supports it and that he is fully behind it. Now, can you imagine how that must have impacted David? This is truly astonishing. It is the climactic moment in this whole scene. Jonathan's robe was his royal robe. Now, the Bible writer does not take us inside of Jonathan's head, so we don't know exactly what he was thinking. But we do know the significance that the act obviously has to any thoughtful observer. Jonathan was symbolically transferring his own royal rights and prerogatives, chief of which was his legitimate claim to the throne of all of Israel. Now, his passing over of his royal weapons and his armor would have had a similar significance, and his unselfish act of generosity is still being talked about today. And by the way, how we live our lives does matter in regards to our posterity. Case in point, Howard Hughes is one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. At the time of his death, he was worth approximately $2.5 billion. He owned a a host of private jets, hotels, and casinos. He had everything that a man could possibly want. Well, except close friends and relatives who truly knew him and really cared about him. Were you aware that when he died, not one single acquaintance or relative mourned his death? The only honor he received was a moment of silence in his Las Vegas casinos. Time Magazine put it this way, and I quote, Howard Hughes' death was commemorated in Las Vegas by a minute of silence. Casinos fell silent. Housewives stood uncomfortable clutching their paper cups full of coins at the slot machines. The blackjack games paused. And at the crap tables, a stickman cradled his dice in the crook of their wooden wands. Then a pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward and whispered, Okay, roll the dice. He's had his minute. Let me ask you, how do you want to be remembered? Hughes had everything, but in reality, he had nothing. And then we read of someone like Jonathan, who instead of self-promotion willingly became a servant. And because of that, we are still honoring him this morning. I simply could not be more impressed with Jonathan. 
Please don't just quickly read over this account and not allow it to impact you. Please keep in the forefront of your mind, Jonathan was in line to be the next king. He was in line to be the successor to the throne. Think of that. Jonathan's life had no doubt been in preparation for the day when his dad would hand down the crown to him. And you know what I think? I think Jonathan would have been a great king. And now here in chapter 18, he meets the guy that is going to take all of those dreams away from him. So question, if you were Jonathan, how would you have responded to David? If you had never heard this story, what would you think was going to happen next? Jonathan, the crown prince, the next in line to the throne, looks at this unlikely hero, then he strips himself of his robe, and all that he is wearing with his weapons, and he gives them to David. Jonathan was a hero, I think, in his own right. He could have looked at David as the competition, but instead he willingly gave up his power and his prestige to ally himself with this one-time shepherd boy from Bethlehem. Now this morning, you too might have a program, a plan, or a passion But perhaps the Lord would say to us today, why don't you just let go? Give me your robe and your weapons. Knit your soul with mine. You'll find freedom and fulfillment like you've never known. And really, when it comes right down to it, all life is is who is sitting on the throne of our individual hearts. Saul was determined to remain in control and on the throne. But Jonathan does just the opposite. The result, Saul goes down in infamy while Jonathan is exalted eternally. I think that Jonathan's friendship entered David's heart in a way that Saul's hatred never could. The disparity between Jonathan and his father could hardly be more stark. And when you talk to people at work or on your campus or in the neighborhood, The issue is always going to be the same. Are you willing to get off of the throne of your life? Are you willing to give control to the God who loves you so much that he became the good shepherd who gave his life for you? This is a daily issue for those of us who know the Lord as well. Who will be on my throne today? Will I give up my abilities and my self-imposed rights to follow the one who gave up the throne of heaven to die for me? Someone once said, there's no limit to what can be accomplished if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And because this quote has been attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, President Truman, and even John Wooden, the true author of the quote never seems to get all the credit. So I hope they were serious when they said that. But I would suggest that a better scenario for the Christian would be this. There's no telling what we can all accomplish if we only care that God gets the glory. Now, from the beginning of this new assignment, David found himself in a life-threatening conflict with King Saul. But David didn't create problems for Saul. Instead, all he did was reveal the deep-seated problems that were already in Saul's life lying underneath the surface. David was an honest man of faith, while Saul was a deceitful, scheming man of the world. With great humility, David accepted his appointment as Israel's next king, 
while Saul became paranoid as he tried to protect his throne. Look at verse 6. Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens thousands. This was the number one song on all the charts. If you turned on Radio Israel, this is what you would hear over and over again. All those crazy kids were dancing to it. But there was a slight problem from Saul's viewpoint. Saul loved the first verse of this number one song, but the second verse enraged him. Now, if we understood the conventions of Hebrew poetry, and if you aren't paranoid, you can appreciate that there was nothing deliberately sinister about this song. They were linking Saul and David together in this united victory. The convention of putting a number in the first line and beefing it up in the second line was just normal Hebrew poetic style. It's as if they were saying more prosaically, Saul and David have struck down their thousands and their tens of thousands. And please notice that they did mention Saul's name first. But here's the thing. Envy is a vile and evil passion. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I realize that maybe envy is not the best choice I can make it in my life, but is it as bad as what you're making it? Let's listen to how the practical book of James describes it. This is James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. The wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. James is saying that if we have envy and his twin sister self-seeking in our hearts, Such things are not from above, but are, and I quote, earthly, sensual, and demonic. Then verse 16 admonishes us, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. What that is saying is, when I have envy in my heart, it provides the perfect environment for all other kinds of evil to grow and to prosper. Do you want more proof? Did you know that it was initially envy that caused Satan to fall from heaven? He saw God's position and power and says, I want that for myself. Listen to how Satan's envy is described in Isaiah chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. This is the reason why. Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And get this, I will make myself just like the most high God. Yeah, but that's the devil. You'd expect him to be bad. That's kind of what he does. All right. Let's take a look at the very first human family, Genesis 4, 3. 
So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain then talked with Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Why did Cain kill his brother? He was envious of his brother's acceptance of God. And this is a worldwide problem that still plagues us to this very day. Shakespeare called jealousy or envy the green-eyed monster. The Germans associate a pale complexion with jealousy. The Swedes become black sick with jealousy. And the Chinese go red with jealousy. The word jealous comes from the word zeal. Now, why would I point that out? Because a jealous person guards everything they have with excessive zeal, whether it's their status, their secrets, or their success. The jealous person is afraid that someone is going to steal something from him or her. Now, there is a distinction between jealousy and envy. To envy is to want something that belongs to another person. In contrast, jealousy is a fear that something which we possess will be taken by another person. Another author explains it this way. The envious man feels others' fortunes are his misfortunes. Their profit, his loss. Their blessings, his bane. Their health, his illness. Their promotion, his demotion. Their success, his failure. And you know what else? If we live for other people's approval, we will never be satisfied. Movie star Marlene Dietrich would record the applause given at the end of her performances and then would play the recordings for visitors in her home. She would gather friends such as Judy Garland and Noel Coward and play them both sides of a record with nothing but applause on it, telling them solemnly which city each round of applause came from. Now, this is why God removed Saul from the throne. Saul was so concerned about hearing the praises of the people that he could no longer hear the voice of God. The same thing can be seen in the life of Haman. He was promoted by the king and strutted around for all to see. But Mordecai was not impressed and refused to bow down before him. And ultimately, Haman was hung on the same exact gallows that he had created to hang Mordecai on. And just like that, pride, jealousy, and self-promoting may be the cause of us being hanged by our own rope. Verse 8, And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. I want us to get this. Envy is a dangerous and a sinister enemy 
that wants to be in a part of our lives. It's a cancer that slowly eats out the inner life and leads us to say and do terrible things. Proverbs 14.30 rightly calls it the rottenness of the bones. Envy is the pain that we feel when somebody achieves or receives something that we think should belong to us. Envy is the sin of having an evil eye. It always sees and desires what it cannot have. And its punishment is that it will never have all that it sees and desires because there will always be more to see than to possess. Not only that, you cannot love your neighbor from your heart if you have envy. You're also asking for trouble in your relationship with God. Erwin Lutzer writes, Envy is rebellion against God's leading the lives of his children. It's saying that God has no right to bless someone more than you. Plus, it ruins our outlook on life. That word angry in verse 8 literally means to glow or grow warm. Like a red-hot stove eye, Saul was burning with jealous rage. And this is what I would begin to call in Saul's life the soul's decline. You see, a spiritual decline is always obvious to everyone except the person involved. Now, sometimes a person can go on hiding it for a while, at least as far as their conscience are concerned. But a spiritual decline and a withdrawal from a walk with the fellowship with God, a refusal to accept the principles of Christian living, a rejection of God's terms for spiritual vitality will soon make itself evident in a person's character. Now, the process here is outlined very clearly in Saul's jealousy of David. Popularity can become a trap in the life of everyone. Proverbs 27:21 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but a man is tested by the praise that he receives. Just as the crucible and furnace can test the metal and prepare it for use, so also praise can test and prepare people for what God has planned for them. And how we respond to praise reveals what we're made of and whether or not we are ready to take on new responsibilities. If praise humbles us and we realize that it is just God working through us, then God can promote us. But if praise lifts us up, then we are not ready for promotion. It's interesting to me that Saul's response to David's success was exactly opposite that of John the Baptist when he was told of the great success that Jesus was now having. John simply understood this, and he said, He must increase, but I must decrease, John 3.30. Now, much modern advertising thrives on envy as it cleverly contrasts the haves against the have-nots and urges all the have-nots to buy the latest product and keep up with the haves. Envious people max out their credit cards to buy things they don't need just to impress people who don't even really care. Comparison is a trap and a deadly game that many people play. The road of comparing ourselves with others is hard and unyielding because no matter how much we strive and achieve, There will always be someone who is bigger, better, and brighter, or who at least we think is bigger, better, and brighter. 
And at the end of that road of constantly comparing us ourselves is bitterness, resentment, and jealousy. It robs us of the contentment that God would want us to have. Steve Farrar is the founder of Point Man Ministries, writes of this experience. He says, we moved from California where we had a small backyard and I had a little push mower. Well, we moved to Little Rock and suddenly I had a backyard a third of an acre. The first day I mowed the grass was in August. The temperature was over 100 and the humidity was over 90. But when I was done, I had a real sense of contentment. Our house was about 10 years old, had a fresh paint of coat on it, and with the manicured green grass, it looked great. I went in to get some iced tea and to sit down. I was just flipping through a magazine to relax, and I saw this article about a couple in Des Moines who had redone their kitchen. It had all the before and after pictures, from old stained countertops to beautiful ceramic tile, from hardly any cupboard space to French doors with a rotating pantry. I flipped the page, and there was another article about a couple in Boise who had redone their back deck, and it was incredible. It followed the contour of the land, and it had a barbecue area. I was out of tea at that point. I went to our kitchen to get some more, and as I walked in, I stopped cold and looked at our kitchen with the old countertops. I went to the pantry to get some sweet and low, but my pantry didn't rotate. There weren't any French doors. Suddenly, I wasn't pleased with our kitchen. I thought, why do we live in a roach trap like this anyway? I looked out at my deck, which I had previously enjoyed the entire day, and I thought, you know, I've seen firewood in better shape than that deck. In about a seven-minute period, I went from a state of contentment to being discontent, all from looking at a magazine. I looked at better kitchens and better decks, and I was suddenly discontented with what I had. That's how envy works, my friends. It blinds us to our blessings and instead has us put our focus on the things that we don't possess. Let's all be on guard and sure that doesn't happen in our lives. Verse 10, And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, and there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. There is a stark contrast now between Saul and David. One we know had the spirit of the Lord. The other is now tormented by an evil spirit. One had in his hand a harp which he, with, with which he could refresh, while Saul, on the other hand, had a spear. In David's hand was a harp an instrument of worship. In Saul's hand was a javelin, an instrument of war. In Saul's hand was an instrument of hurting. In David's hand was an instrument of healing. Let me ask you this morning, what's in your hand? Worship or war? Hurting or healing? Saul and David were both leaders. Both have been anointed. But one is on his way down, and the other one is on his way up. And by the way, you can always tell whether you're on your way up or down by what instrument you're holding in your hand. A person who is losing the anointing, who is diminishing in their calling, will be throwing spears and cutting people down with harsh words. But when Saul threw his spear at David, this one who slew a giant didn't throw it back. 
Now, I guess throwing a spear and pinning a person to the wall is one way to get rid of your worship leader. But it does seem pretty harsh to throw a spear at your praise band. Maybe Sawdust didn't like Southern Gospel. I don't know. Erase that if you're taking notes. It's fascinating to me that David did not run from a bear or a lion or Goliath, but he runs from King Saul. Was he afraid? I don't think so. I think he just refused to touch the king who even at this time was still considered the Lord's anointed. That is called obedience even when it goes against all of our natural inclinations. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So we see that the Lord protects David from the murderous hand of Saul. And this is a fact, I think, that frightens Saul even more as he surely knows now that he is fighting a losing battle. For the Lord was on David's side now, and he has departed completely from King Saul. However, Saul kept up a brave front for nothing else to try to impress his officers that he still had some authority. Even if he missed his target, the people around him didn't miss the message that he was sending. Saul is king, and he wants David to be killed. According to an ancient Greek legend, a certain athlete ran well but placed second in a race. The winner was adorned with praise, and eventually a statue was erected in the winner's honor. Tragically, envy ate at the man who had came in second place. He resented the winner, and he could think of nothing else. Eventually, he decided he would destroy the statue that was erected in honor of the winner. Night after night, he went to the statue under the cover of darkness and chiseled away at the base of the foundation to weaken it. But one night as he chiseled, he went too far. and In his violent anger, the heavy marble statue teetered on its base and crashed down on top of the disgruntled athlete. He died beneath the weight of the marble replica of the man he had grown to hate. We could say his own envy destroyed him. That is precisely what is happening in the life of Saul. The Lord is with David, however, and Saul was not permitted to harm him. And during the ten years or so that David is going to be a fugitive from Saul, the Lord not only thwarted Saul's plans repeatedly, but he even used the king's hostility to mature David and make him into a man of courage and of faith. While Saul was guarding his throne, David was being prepared for his throne. And that's the rub, isn't it, my friends? Each of us have to get to the place where we can accept that sometimes God will allow hard things into our lives. He does this solely for the purpose of molding us into the man or the woman that he longs for us to be. Now, that's easy for me to say, but a whole lot harder to implement when the time comes for it to be part of my life. The book of James once again exhorts us, James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I really like the J.B. Phillips translation here. He writes, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends. 
realize they come to test your faith and produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed, and you will find that you become men and women of mature character with the right sort of independence. Andrew Murray, the great writer who encouraged prayer in the deeper life, once found himself facing a terrible crisis. Gathered himself into a study, set for a long time while quietly, prayerfully, and thoughtfully deciding what to do next. His mind at last flew to Christ, and picking up his pen, he wrote these words in his journal. First, he brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this difficult place, and that fact I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me the grace to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends for me to learn and working in me the grace he intends to bestow. Last, in this good time he can bring me out again, how and when, he alone knows. He sums up the experience by writing the following. Let me say I'm here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, and four, for his time. That is called Christian maturity. The bottom line of today's message is really very simple. We are to be a content people regardless of whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in. Philippians 4.11, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned. It's something we have to learn. It doesn't come automatically. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Being content is not always easy, but it is always possible. We have to practice being content with who we are and what God has given us. Contentment is not a feeling as much as it is a choice that we make. And that choice may have to be made over and over again. And as we do this, we'll be able to be content in whatever situation we may find ourselves. In closing, a rich businessman was walking along the beach and was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily by his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. Because I already caught enough fish for one day, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch more fish than you need, the rich man asked. What would I do with them? Well, you could earn more money, came the businessman's impatient reply and buy a better boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets, catch even more fish, and make more money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. The fisherman asked, then what would I do? You could sit down and enjoy life, said the businessman. The fisherman looked out over the beautiful blue sea with the breeze blowing gently in his face, and he said, what do you think I'm doing right now? And, Father, we do want to be a content people. I know just here in the past two weeks, we've had so much happen in this church, so much heartache, so much loss. And I pray, Lord, it's at this time that you make yourself even more known to us. Let us love one another. Let us be that body that you called us to be. When one hurts, the others rush to that. When one rejoices, we all rejoice together. It's something that we want in our lives, Lord. Make it happen, I pray, in Christ's name, amen.